Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last Sunday, we witnessed the morning of the first day as Peter and John raced to the tomb and Mary Magdalene met the resurrected Christ in the garden. Today, we read of what happened that evening. John 20, verse 19 begins, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Again, as he did at the beginning of the chapter, John reiterates, this is the first day. The resurrection of Jesus brings a new creation, a new world, a new humanity. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The disciples have heard Mary Magdalene's report, I have seen the Lord. Peter and John have seen the empty tomb for themselves, but they haven't seen Jesus with their own eyes. They still live in fear. And who can blame them, right? They've just seen the man they thought was God's Messiah tortured and crucified, though he had committed no crime. As his known associates, the disciples have to assume that they're next on the high priest's hit list. And so they're in hiding, and they've locked all the doors. They're afraid. And that's why they were shocked when, as John says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. That's probably the right thing to say because they're probably pretty freaked out at that moment, right? They're surprised by his appearance. They thought he was dead. So the first word, the resurrected Christ, speaks to his disciples is shalom, peace be with you. He speaks that which he has just won for them. Jesus bore the weight of God's wrath over our sin that we might be at peace with God. And so the resurrected Christ speaks peace to all who live in fear. But how did he get in here in the first place? Right? I thought the doors were locked. Is he some kind of ghost, some ethereal spirit floating through timber and stone? No, it's not that. Clearly, Jesus is still very human. He's very physical. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He's showing them the wounds from his crucifixion, from the nails and from the spear that pierced him. This is not an apparition. It's not a hallucination. This is the same Jesus they saw crucified, just as real as he was two days before. In truth, Jesus is more real now more solid now than he was two days before, because Jesus is more real now than any human being ever has been. The resurrected Christ is humanity as it was meant to be, transfigured, matured, glorified, fully empowered by the spirit breath of God. Jesus is still human, but now he is humanity freed from the shackles of death and decay, freed from the bondage of the curse. And apparently, this means Jesus is no longer bound by the usual limitations of movement and space, which is pretty cool if you think about it. But let us not miss that his entrance into this locked room has a symbolic function, too. 
In scripture, the images of, of doors and locks and keys, these things have to do with authority. The gatekeeper controls who goes where, who enters in, who is shut out. And that's what John is showing us here. Jesus is exercising unheard of authority over the world. Two days before, Jesus had willingly subjected himself to the authority of the religious and political leaders of Jerusalem to suffer for our salvation. He was bound by the soldiers and the officers of the Jews. He subjected himself to the authority of death and the grave. Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands. But that work is finished. And we find on Easter morning that the grave could not contain him. The gates of hell could not withstand him. So a locked door doesn't stand a chance. Jesus is now fully the one born of the Spirit, as he spoke of at the beginning of John's Gospel. He is the one born of the Spirit. He goes wherever he wants, whenever he wants. All doors are open to Jesus. John will also record in the Revelation that Jesus is the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. Simply put, Jesus holds the keys to the kingdom, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of reality. Jesus is the Lord of matter, time, and space. And so he walks into the room with the locked door. In verse 21, Jesus says to the disciples, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. If we are united to Christ as his body, then what is true of him is true of us. He was sent, we are sent as well. Jesus was sent by his Father to bring peace. And so we are sent by Jesus to extend that peace to the ends of the earth. And that commission is grammatically connected to what we have here in the next verse, verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Their mission is made possible by the gift of the Spirit. But this is kind of weird, right? Why does Jesus breathe on them? Somebody did that to you? That'd be a little weird, right? What does that have to do with the gift of the Spirit? Now notice that these two verses are filled with new creation imagery. When you think of God breathing on a man, what other story comes to mind? Our Old Testament reading for this morning, right? The creation of Adam. God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And what was Adam's commission? given by God. What did God create him to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So reading that story into verse 21 and 22 of John's gospel here, what do we learn? The disciples are new Adams. Jesus is breathing on them, breathing life into them. And this has to do with them receiving the Spirit in order to carry out their mandate. Remember that in both Greek and in Hebrew, the same word is used for spirit and for breath. 
The Holy Spirit is the life breath of God that enters into the disciples and brings them new life in Christ. And this breath enlivens them and it strengthens them and it commissions them. It makes it possible for them to go out and subdue the earth to bring the peace of Christ to all peoples, all places, all things to speak peace. And we have been given that same spirit. And we have been given that same task. And then Jesus bestows authority on the apostles, which they are to exercise as part of this commission. In verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This reminds us of Matthew's gospel where Jesus says to the disciples, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He calls it the keys of the kingdom. Well, remember what we just saw. Jesus entered the room even though the doors were locked. Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. Jesus has authority over all things, as he said over the bed of the paralytic. The Son of Man even has authority to forgive sins. But you see, it is Jesus' plan to exercise his authority through the apostles that he has just appointed. It is through them that he will open and shut, that he will bind and loose. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, does this mean that the disciples get to decide the difference between right and wrong? Can they wield this authority however they choose? No, because it's not their authority. It's not their authority. The keys belong to Jesus. He simply entrusts his keys into the hands of his stewards while he is away. The authority is not in the apostles themselves. It is in Christ and in his gospel. And so the apostles aren't just going to be able to make things up as they see fit. They must align their binding and loosing with what Christ has said. Really, this authority is already inherent in the gospel message itself, isn't it? If you preach that Jesus Christ is God's chosen king, risen from the dead, and now reigning over all things, that message demands a response. Your hearers can believe it and repent of their sins and give themselves to Christ in which you proclaim what he has said, that he has forgiven them. Or your hearers can reject Jesus. They can rebel against his rule, in which case you warn what he has said to warn, that forgiveness is withheld because they have rejected the only one who is able to forgive them. This is why we have a declaration of forgiveness in our service. It's why Chad and I proclaim to you in an authoritative manner that your sins are indeed forgiven in Christ's name. Because in the Reformed tradition, we believe that the authority of the keys is passed from the apostles down to all the men who have been ordained by the church to speak that same gospel to God's people. Now, I know that makes some people nervous because this authority of binding and loosing has been abused in the past. 
Uh, in the medieval Roman Catholic Church particularly, many popes and priests used their authority not for the glory of Christ and to proclaim his word, but for their own glory. They used this authority to control kings and peasants alike. They used their authority for their own selfish ends, and the pious suffered for it. But those are abuses of the gift, not Christ's intention. Reformers like John Calvin, though they knew the potential abuses better than any of us, they still maintained a very high view of this office of the keys. And on this particular passage, Calvin writes, and I quote at length, we now see the reason why Christ employs such magnificent terms to commend and adorn that ministry which he bestows on the apostles. It is so that believers may be fully convinced that what they hear concerning the forgiveness of sins is ratified and may value the forgiveness which is offered by the voice of men as if God himself stretched out his hand from heaven. That's how we are to receive the forgiveness of sins when it is preached and proclaimed, to receive it as if God himself were speaking forgiveness to us. And Calvin goes on, And the church daily receives the most abundant benefit from this doctrine when it perceives that her pastors are divinely ordained to be sureties for eternal salvation and that it must not go to a distance to seek the forgiveness of sins, which is committed to their trust. Nor ought we to esteem less highly this invaluable treasure because it is exhibited in earthen vessels. That means dummies like me and Chad. But we have ground of thanksgiving to God who hath conferred upon men so high an honor as to make them the ambassadors and deputies of God and of his Son in declaring the forgiveness of sins. Calvin says, There are fanatics who despise this embassy, but let us know that by doing so, they trample underfoot the blood of Christ. In other words, God appoints ministers and pastors to proclaim the forgiveness of sins as if he himself were saying it. And he does this for your comfort and for your confidence and for your assurance. You don't have to wonder and wander trying to hear God's voice in far-off places and in strange ways. God is already speaking to you week after week, right here, through the lips of earthen vessels ordained to speak his gospel. So when we declare your sins forgiven, don't hear it as me or Chad saying it, Hear it as Christ himself declaring what he has promised in his word and know the peace the resurrected Christ speaks to his disciples. Verse 24 starts a new section and this event apparently happens sometime after Jesus has left the disciples. John tells us now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We're not told where Thomas was. Uh, he's the guy who said back in chapter 11, let us go that we may die with him. It's very brave, isn't it? But Thomas had certainly not gone and died with Jesus. Perhaps the revolution had not been as glorious as Thomas thought. 
Perhaps he was too ashamed or too scared to show his face now. Regardless, he wasn't around when Jesus appeared to the others. John says Thomas was called the twin. That that's what his name means in Aramaic. But why does John expend ink to print that out for us? How does that detail contribute to this account? I want you to hold on to that question for just a moment. Verse 25, so the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. And this is why Thomas is often called Doubting Thomas. He's heard the word from the other apostles, but he can't believe unless he sees it for himself. Can you relate to that desire? Preaching on this passage, Frederick Beekner once said, Thomas is called the twin, and if you want to know who the other twin is, I can tell you. I am the other twin. And unless I miss my guess, so are you. How can we believe that Christ is alive when we haven't seen him? I believe the sun rose this morning because there it is in the sky above us. I believe you and I are alive because here we are looking at each other. But when it comes to this central proclamation and holiest mystery of Christian faith, that after his death, Jesus returned to life and is alive to this day, how can we believe that? When Thomas says that unless he sees him with his own eyes, he will not believe, I think we all know in our hearts what he's talking about. And I'm right there with Beekner. I'm Thomas's twin. I'm a skeptic, if you can believe it. I don't want to take someone else's word for it. I want to see it for myself. I figure if it's real, if it's true, it ought to be able to stand a little scrutiny, right? You ought to be able to kick the tires on your metaphysical presuppositions, right? So the last thing that I would want any of you thinking is that because I'm a pastor, belief comes easily for me, as if they stapled it to the back of my seminary diploma, right? Particularly in these last few years, I have wanted so badly to, to see Jesus, to see some sign, to see some unmistakable evidence to me that he's there, that he's involved, that he cares. I imagine you've all wanted the same thing at some point in your life. So we can understand Thomas. We're his twins. We want to see Jesus too. But Maybe we've missed the chance. Now that isn't the end of Thomas's story, and so we hope it's not the end of ours either. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Does that sequence sound familiar? Isn't this almost an exact replica of what happened the previous Sunday? Doors are locked. Jesus comes in. Peace be with you. See my hands. See my side. John tells us Jesus did so many things during his time on earth that if they were written down, the world could not contain the books. So if that's the case, why does John spend ink 
writing out the very same things a second time in the same chapter. It's because God's law says the truth is a matter, the truth of a matter must be established by the testimony of two witnesses. If you can't find at least two people who saw it happen, you can't be certain it did. It's a basic principle of biblical law. The disciples see the risen Christ on the first day, and now Thomas goes through the exact same experience on the second first day. Twin stories in the same chapter, seen through the eyes of Thomas the twin, Thomas the double, Thomas the double-minded, Thomas the doubter, now Thomas the double witness. Thus the truth is established. The law is fulfilled. There is a double witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice, the resurrected Christ is so apparently and obviously present to Thomas that, once again, Thomas doesn't fulfill his rash vow. You notice he doesn't place his finger in the mark of the nails. He doesn't place his hand into Jesus' side. He doesn't need to. He believes. Verse 28, Thomas simply answered him, my Lord and my God. And that's significant too. No Jew would ever address a mere mortal as their God. And yet Thomas just blurts it out. Jesus is God. A phrase which is commonplace to us, but it was scandalously new to these first century Jews. But the conclusion is unavoidable, isn't it? The one who conquers death itself deserves the kind of worship and devotion that is only rightly given to God. So Jesus was incredibly gracious to doubting Thomas. He gave him what he asked for. He showed himself to him. He stood in reach of him. He let him kick the tires on this whole resurrection thing. Indeed, this was not the last time Jesus would appear to his disciples. Paul tells us Jesus went on to appear to many more witnesses as well, more than 500 people at one time. Jesus does not despise the importance of seeing. He knows we long for that which we can see and touch. And yet, Jesus demands something more, even of Thomas. Look at what he says in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, Jesus is not planning to stay on earth and travel the world, have every single person form a line and take turns touching his nail wounds and putting their own grubby hands in his side, right? Frederick Buechner also said, even though Jesus said the greater blessing is for those who can believe without seeing, it's hard to imagine there's a believer anywhere who wouldn't have traded places with Thomas, given the chance, and seen that face, and heard that voice, and touched those ruined hands. Wouldn't you like to be given that chance? I mean, not even to, to touch the wounds and to render your verdict. I mean, just once, just for a second, wouldn't you like to see with your own eyes 
the Lord whom you've suffered for, whom you've given your life for, whom you've been made a fool in the eyes of this world for. But Jesus must ascend to heaven. He must rule at the Father's right hand. So there's a whole lot of people who won't have the opportunity to see the resurrected Jesus as Thomas and the other apostles did. In fact, millions and millions of people and you and I among them. And it's not any different for pastors. I wasn't there on the evening of that first day. I never saw Jesus. I never heard his voice. Every single one of the 8 billion people now living on this planet are two millennia too late to see Jesus with their own eyes or touch Jesus with their own hands. It's simply not an option that's open to us. So if we were to make that the basis for our belief, unless I see, unless I touch, it ain't going to happen. If that's what we're waiting for, then we will never believe. Well, what about people like Thomas and John? They did see and touch Jesus. Maybe our faith is based on them, on their experience of Jesus. Those guys aren't around anymore either. I never met the Apostle John or even his third cousin twice removed. How do I know he was telling the truth? I wasn't there. You weren't there. We're all 2,000 years too late to talk to the eyewitnesses too, to verify their stories. But we do have their stories, at least some of them. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And of course, there are a lot of good reasons to trust this book. Partly because you couldn't make up this stuff if you tried. You wouldn't dream of it. The gospel story has the inner consistency of reality. It, it reads sort of like a first-hand account of something very strange and wonderful that happened in first-century Palestine. And that's what it was. The authors seem just as shocked and amazed by it as we are. And yet, looking back on it, we find that this story fits beautifully with what had been written thousands of years before by more than 40 different authors. We believe the gospel partly because millions of souls far wiser and better than we have believed it, have found their lives in it, have given their lives for it. And we believe it partly because, as J.R.R. Tolkien once said, there is no tale ever told men would rather find was true. There is no other story that speaks to the deepest joys and sorrows of this world and the deepest longings of the human heart as the story of Jesus the Christ does. There are lots of reasons to believe, but they are not sight and touch these reasons don't do the believing for you. Jesus demands far more from we who have not seen him. And as I have wrestled with this, especially these past few years, I, I keep coming to this conclusion that belief is not something that just happens to you. It's not something done 
to you or for you, much as we might like it to be. Belief is not finally seeing the right kind of evidence or the right amount of evidence so that you are finally convinced, finally overcome by the sheer force of evidence. At the end of the day, when the dust settles, belief is a choice. You have to choose to trust the book. Choose to trust the witnesses. Choose to trust Jesus himself. Now, I'm not denying that the Spirit is at work behind these choices, but that's an article of faith. It's not something that you see and touch, is it? From our perspective, what we know is that we are called to respond. We are called to respond to the Word. We are called to believe. We are called to believe in a person, Jesus. And that's not always an easy thing to do, regardless of whether you are in the pew or the pulpit. We are all reading the same book, and that's all that any of us have to go on. Each of us is responsible for what we do with it. So there is a choice presented to us by this book and by this passage. Will you go on? Will you believe? Though you may never see that face, may never hear that voice, may never touch those ruined hands, will you believe? It's no coincidence the word believe appears in this passage seven times. Jesus demands all the belief we doubting Thomases can muster. He calls for belief in a person, in himself, in the resurrected Christ, not only believing that he did indeed rise, but believing in him, entrusting ourselves to him, relying on him, living for him. Exactly what John says, believing for your very life. We can choose to take him at his word, to take his word as his word, written by those who witnessed his resurrection, those who touched his ruined hands, those who went on to tell the whole world at the cost of their own lives. By God's grace, we can choose to believe that he continues to speak to us when these scriptures are faithfully read and proclaimed he continues to speak when his ministers declare our sins have been forgiven in Jesus' name. He continues to speak in the water that pours over us and the bread and wine which we taste. And if we, like Thomas, find that we do actually believe, we will bow before our Lord and our God in worship, believing that one day we too We'll see him with our own eyes, touch him with our own hands, and live in the peace that he brings forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, though we do not now see Jesus, we believe that he is risen. We believe that he reigns at your right hand, and we believe that he is with us now by the power of his spirit, leading us in worship speaking to us through his word, feeding us at his table, and nourishing us with his resurrection life. We believe. Help our unbelief. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now we give ourselves to the Lord by giving him our tithes and any offerings that go beyond. We'll do that now.
eyes. We'll sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given yourself to us through the person of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. And now we give ourselves to you through these tithes and offerings. We grant that you would bless them and use them to advance his kingdom both here and throughout the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>